Welcome to season three of the Jesus of Love podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mills. And I'm your other host, Brett Mills. We are founders, we're creatives, we're entrepreneurs, and we're activists. We're musicians, and we love Jesus. We've learned a lot serving the Jesus Said Love community, and this is the space we'll get to talk about. Ever learning, ever growing, ever loving. So come with us and explore how we can awaken hope and empower change together to create more space for love. Welcome to the Jesus Said Love podcast. We are in the midst of Women's History Month, and we have had some fire guests on this show. I think you have probably had your mind blown and your heart just cast wide open because our guests have just been so authentic, so smart, um, and so fiery with what they're bringing into the world right now. And it excites me as a woman. You are still just hearing my voice, Emily Mills, as your host on the podcast because Brett is still taking this week off. Um, for those of you who've reached out to him, we just thank you so much. Our, our family has felt so much love and so much support from you, from meals to flowers to cards to kind text and wonderful emails. Um, we feel held during this time after losing our pops. The service was beautiful. The uh, memorial was just truly a celebration. And we have been reminded that where we grieve is also where we have loved and lost love. And um, it's just a profound place to be. So thank you so much to our listening community for the way that you've cared for us. Today on the podcast, we have Megan Chons, and she is the host of the Faith and Feminism podcast, which is really a great podcast if you're interested in those two things. Um, And she's also a new author. She is releasing a book called Women Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. So welcome to the show, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, it's exciting to have you and just hear a little more of like how you take up space in this world and how you got here. How did you go from being a woman raised in um, a conservative Christian home to hosting a podcast on faith and feminism and now writing a book about reclaiming our voices? Seems like a pretty big journey. Tell us it, a little bit. It has been. And so I'm just going to say buckle up because it's I can't <laughs> tell the story short. I've tried. I've been on enough podcasts now. Yeah. I know this takes up a good chunk of time. Do so um, I, as you already said, I was raised in a conservative Christian church. I was raised to believe that my purpose as a woman was to serve the men in my life, whether that be my father or my potential future husband. All of it was about serving, submitting, respecting men. Um, And so with that being the only context, even though that felt a little unfair, a little wrong that we focused so much on men and my my upbringing, uh, I didn't have any other teachings that I was exposed to, especially Especially in the context of church, because I believed in Jesus and I loved Jesus, uh, but these teachings didn't really seem to sit right. But like I said, I didn't have any other exposure to anything else. And so um, I grew up, I went to college. Um, Where'd worked, you go to college? Uh, Boulder. So I went okay. to CU Boulder. Um, so, um, and is that where you grew up too? I grew up in Castle Rock. 
Okay. So my parents okay. are divorced. Okay. My dad is the one that brought me to church. Mm. And they didn't like my mom because she was a divorced woman. And I remember my mom telling me that when I was like 10 or something. And I didn't understand. Um, I understand now that this happens because my father was a divorced man and was still able to go. Yeah, widely accepted. Um, So, anyways, like it was a little background of Mm -hmm. (laughs) my church that I grew up in. Um, So, I. Um, went to school for journalism. Um, it's so crazy that I'm writing a book now, like in podcasting. Like I feel I'm using my degree, but yeah. at the time that I graduated, I did not feel like I wanted to use it. I worked for a newspaper and I hated it. Mm. Um, it was cutthroat. I couldn't say my own thoughts or opinions. And that's what good reporting is, is like not entering your bias, but I wanted to put in my bias. <laughs> um, so it was a challenge for me. And so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to dive into like my faith and and to God. And as a woman being raised in this culture, um, I was left with two options. I could either be a pastor's wife, um, Mm. and that was the most influence I could have, or I could be a missionary. And so given the context of what marriage looked like, I was not super keen to jump into that right away and decided to be a missionary. And so I, hey, yeah, so I went around the world on this program called the World Race, which is an 11 country, 11 month um, mission trip. And um, I'm going to give a small caveat before, because I think it's important when we're talking about missions that we talk about white saviorism Mm -hmm. and some problematic elements of missions that I'm sure many people are familiar with, but um, I was raised with a very strong white saviorism. And so uh, this idea that white people could evangelize to these unchurched people, these people that don't know God, and kind of this superiority that we Mm -hmm. knew how to fix their problems. And And all of that, don't you think, and I want to ask you this, but mm -hmm. in my upbringing, which is a similar faith background tradition, Southern Baptist, though, evangelical, mm-hmm. um, it wasn't like, sign up if you're a white person and you want to save people. That's not how it yeah. was pitched. Mm-mm. No. It was like, if you want to do the Lord's will. Yes. And, and so I mean, help people. Yeah. And well, I mean, that's how good. it was. It does sound good, right? But I think because we're so blind to the water we're swimming in, we don't understand how that could be harmful. So uh, before, like again, before I dive into this deep story, I will talk briefly about missions and missions work. So uh, the way it was pitched to me, a great commission. God tells us to go on missions. This is our... We're supposed to have a heart for the nations Mm -hmm. and care about people. And so that's what brought me in, as I truly wanted to help and care about people. Um, However, the way I was taught to do that was very centering of me and my culture and almost coming with this air of superiority. I'm better. I know better. Um, So an example of this, I'll get more into the story later, but um, we were told uh, in one of my months to, you know, give these talks on perseverance to student, like 600 students at a time. Um, we, as people growing up, at least me, in a, in a more privileged upbringing, um, don't understand perhaps a much, as much about perseverance as, say, a girl fighting to get an education in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really, if anyone should be teaching about perseverance, it should be them and not mm-hmm. us. We should be listening not teaching. And I think that's where we've gotten it wrong with missions is we think we have the answers. And so we're just going to give you Jesus and think that fixes everything and don't understand or take the time to understand cultural issues, things that, I mean, like they've had this 
problem that just like the United States has a mass shooting problem. Right. How would we feel if someone from Africa came in here and said, this is how you fix your problem yeah. um, without listening or understanding the cultural influences that lead us to where we are today? Mm. So missions, unfortunately, they don't necessarily train. I wasn't trained anything about racism. Um, I wasn't even familiar. Like I thought racism was so individual. I didn't realize it was systemic. Um, there's so many things that I think missionaries should be trained on yeah. uh, before they're sent out. And then really actually listening to the people having a heart to support the causes that they've already started and saying, starting like starting from scratch and saying, I know how to fix your problem. And so I'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to issue that caveat before mm-hmm. I talk about missions. Yeah. Um, so almost immediately I w- uh, was in, uh, on the race, I was almost immediately introduced to uh, misogyny and mm. the idea that women were less. And so um, it actually started in Ireland. I um, didn't expect it, but our contact asked us, asked us, or he said we might, it might be a good idea to wear head coverings at church. Many of us being unfamiliar with this concept didn't even know what he meant, if this was a headscarf or if this was like, um, you know, a piece of cloth that we put on our head. And so most of us chose not to wear headscarves when we went to church. Quickly, we found out that was very not okay for him. (laughs) And he talked to us about God's order and how women should be seen and not heard and how women's worship should be inaudible while men should be audible. And this whole tirade of just how women are less, women are easily deceived, women's place is below men. And um, it wasn't the first time I had heard teaching like that. Certainly, it wasn't. Can I? Oh, hold on. Yeah, go ahead. This is, is this the pastor who has taken you, who's like your host? Um, so the way the world race works is you will have, so you're basically by yourself on a team and then you're set up with a contact. So this was our contact. Um, I'm not even quite sure the role that he had in the church, but we were there to serve his purposes, I guess. And, and serve so, that church. And so that church had that theology. Yes, or at least this man. Again, mm. the church seemed a lot more welcoming. When we went to church, we did notice women were wearing head coverings, but like they were very nice to us and no one was like, no head coverings and the service seemed fine. Like it wasn't anything about the service, but it was his reaction to us not wearing head coverings. Mm. That, so did he sit you down and give you this yes. tirade? Wow. Yes. He sat down all of the teams. So there was three teams there and just went off on the women. Um, and a lot of... Some of us got upset, understandably so. Actually, I had a male teammate. So this is when we're talking about male allyship. Mm -hmm. We should talk about this. He stood up and he said, you cannot talk to them this way anymore. And he's like, girls, women, you don't have to endure this. Go outside. And so a handful of us went outside and cried because it was so... And I think about how we're trained to sit and take it. Right. Well, that's... we we, I guess we we thought we needed permission to leave. Um, But we did leave and we did (sighs) cry. And it was the first time I actually realized I wasn't alone in thinking that this was wrong. Mm. And by this time, I had been exposed to different teachings, but I didn't really have the words to combat it. And plus, this guy wasn't listening to us anyways. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was, I knew then when I knew I wasn't alone that I was going to do something, that we were, we were going to do something about this. And so several months later, I was in Kenya. And again, that scenario I just described at, we were giving talks about perseverance to students or whatever, you know, perseverance, like uh, other like feel good things. And um, 
After one of my talks, I had a girl come up to me and she asked me, hey, does female circumcision happen in the United States? And I remembered from my women's studies class hearing about it. Of course, we called it female genital mutilation. So Mm -hmm. for those who are not familiar with the term, female genital mutilation is when either the clitoris or the whole external genitalia is removed Mm -hmm. um, without anesthesia, without any proper training. Girls can bleed to death. um, And it's a way of controlling women's sexuality. Um, So there's no pleasure at all involved. That's the the point of it. The point. It's actually extremely painful. So if you think about how many nerve endings the clitoris has, and then cutting that off with with no anesthesia or anything, the amount of pain that Mm -hmm. comes from that being butchered, sex is extremely painful. And on top of that, it's actually extremely dangerous. So if they Mm -hmm. do survive their procedure, if they don't bleed to death on the table, if they don't uh, have, because these aren't proper equipment, Mm -hmm. if they don't have, um, you know, a mass infection, um, they do live with urinary infections Mm -hmm. for the rest of their life. And on top of that, depending on the type of female genital mutilation they have, um, the baby, when they do get pregnant and have a baby, the baby will get stuck because of the scar tissue. Mm. Um, So the whole, the baby gets stuck and Mm. the baby dies. And then the Mm. baby starts, if there's not access to medical care, the baby will start to rot inside Mm. the mother, which can obviously affect the mother's life and causes another medical condition called fistulas, Mm -hmm. which we don't have time to get into. All of this to say it's an extremely barbaric process and it should not be happening. And so the first time someone asked me that, I just said, no, we don't have that. But if we do our research, actually, there it is still practiced here in some parts of the United States. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. And I also didn't know how to react to that question because mm. uh, it seemed so random. It was like after a question about like pizza. Yeah. And so um, I got asked that question again and wow. again. And then I started to realize... Uh, something was happening here. And I remember after one of the teachings, four girls came up to me, asked me the same question. I was feeling I had done enough like research and education where I felt like I could talk about it at this point. And I started talking about the harms and they all just hung their heads in shame. And I was like, oh no, this, I'm making the situation worse. Like Mm. I don't want to bring shame onto something they've already survived. And one of them spoke up and said, this has happened to us. This mm. happens to all women here in this, in this village. And um, I, I was shocked, but I also wasn't shocked at the same time. And it was then, because this was in the middle of also hearing stories about girls fighting to go to school, mm. getting beatings for going mm-hmm. to school or mm-hmm. not doing their chores. And they saw their brothers go to school with no hindrances mm-hmm. and be encouraged. But they were told because their place was in the home, that education wasn't important. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way they fought for that. And then on top of that, another girl had told me that she was being raped by her uncle, mm-hmm. which is completely devastating. Mm-hmm. And so I started to ask the question, I wonder if there's anything due to these patriarchal gender norms that these girls have been taught and that is present in their culture and the way they've been treated and their abuse. And so I was just beginning to ask that question. Mm -hmm. And then um, the next month I worked with women in Tanzania who were telling me they were experiencing a lot of male violence. Mm -hmm. And I was reading a book called Half the Sky Mm -hmm. by Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wudun, which I highly recommend. 
And they said sometimes the answer is to introduce microfinance programs because perhaps if these money or these women have some money, they're more esteemed in their society. It might change power differentials mm-hmm. so they're not beaten. Um, and so this time I'm still very entrenched in white saviorism. I reached out to the uh, con- my, my sending organization. I'm like, hey, this is happening in this village. What can we do? And he told me, even though I was there for three weeks, that I should start an organization. So that's problematic, right? Because I'm <laughs> there for three weeks. I know. So he put me in touch with this microfinance guy who ran programs in um, different parts of Eastern Africa. And he called out my white saviorism so hard. He's wow. like, who are you to say these women aren't educated? Uh, you know, they've lived uh, uh-huh. through droughts. They know how to take care of their children. They know how to farm. Really just calling out so many misconceptions that I had with my culture, thinking my culture was superior and that I could help them because I was white. And of course, my thinking wasn't like that. Like I I did not phrase it that way, but it was definitely the heart of what I had been taught. And so Mm -hmm. he called me out. I'm really, he did it in a really nice way. Those letters (laughs) are in my book. The emails are in my book, the actual Mm -hmm. emails. They're a little painful to read. Um, But it was such an important lesson for me. And Mm -hmm. at this time, No one was talking about, this is 2012, no one was talking about white saviorism. Um, And so I kind of took a step back into myself, started reevaluating, should I even be doing missions work, all of these questions Mm -hmm. asking. Um, And then several months later, I was working with trafficked women from Nepal. And Mm -hmm. so the way trafficking, I mean, you guys know about Mm -hmm. trafficking, but uh, um, traffickers will go to impoverished villages in Nepal and say, hey, give us your children. Um, We'll get them a good job in India. And that's not what happens. These kids often end up in either forced labor or in the sex trade. And so that was the story of these women. They were Mm -hmm. from Nepal. uh, They were trafficked over the border and they were being sold for sex. Mm -hmm. And they were being ran by pimps. And Mm so I was there working with an incredible contact. And he had started a daycare center in this area um, for these women's children after one of the children told him that he used to have to hide under the bed while yeah. the mother was raped. Yeah. And so they started this daycare organization. I was just, we were there to help feed, clean, take care of these children. And um, while I was there, I met a young girl, um, immediately had my heart stolen by her. And I found out her story. She's being raised by the pimp who sold her mother. Her mother was sold, she was sold uh, her mother was sold when she was six months old. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, she had a hearing condition that made it hard for her to hear. Um, she could hear you yell, but not hear you speak. So something that could probably easily cor- be corrected with a hearing aid. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it was, she was being raised by a pimp. She didn't have access to hearing aids or any kind of medication. And then was obviously just very not cared for, malnourished, mm-hmm. not clean, like had a lot of sores. And... I remember asking our contact, like, what can we do for her? This is not okay. And him telling us, the pimps are violent. They'll kill over their property. We can't go to the cops because they're bought off by these traffickers. And you're just going to have to learn to pray and love and listen for now. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that was a moment where something in me broke. I had Mm -hmm. endured enough oppression myself as a woman, but the last six months, of traveling the world made it very, very clear that one thing was consistent while food and culture and, uh, you know, landscapes Mm -hmm. changed, one thing never changed. And that was the way women were treated as less than. And so 
I was like, I wanted to, I'd like, maybe I can't help her. Um, and, and another good lesson there is that he was most equipped, this contact was the most equipped to help her because uh, he's been taking care of her. She can now hear. She has um, hearing medication. Wow. She's in school. She's learning to read and write, and she's being cared for by this family. Yeah. And so um, another, like, the locals, of course, they're yeah. involved. Of course, they care. It's not like I can come and swoop her up and save her because I'm American. Um, so that was another lesson I learned. Mm. But um, the whole idea, like, this is consistent. And mm. so I was asked by my sending organization to to kind of revamp this inner healing program called Beauty for Ashes. Mm-hmm. And so we started this inner healing program where we basically gave women a safe place to sell their tell their stories. Because if you'll remember, that was what was so influential for me was realizing I wasn't alone. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when we share our stories, we realize, oh, that happened to you, or you feel this way too. When we remove that secrecy and shame, it can be very healing. Mm -hmm. And so um, we started this program. We started with women in the United States first, um, and then went around the world for another six months. Mm -hmm. And I continued to work with this organization, worked with trafficked women, uh, uh, orphans, or mm. sorry, wi- widows, um, mm. and just all kinds of oppressed women. And my job, again, was to hear story after story after story after story after story of oppression, of rape, of mm. violence, of women barely surviving male violence. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, I need to start telling these stories. I um, started blogging about it. Mm. And Eventually, like I continued to work for this organization for many years and was leading a trip to the Philippines. And it was three weeks before I was about to get married. And um, I was in a bar. And so I was in Southeast Asia. And the way these women are trafficked is uh, so climate change is a factor. A lot of these provinces are getting completely wiped out. Um, They're farming. And so these families might have, you know, eight to 10 children and they'll send their oldest daughter say, hey, go to the city, like find work, help us survive, mm-hmm. give us food to eat, send us money home so we can make it through this so we can rebuild. And so what happens is these young uneducated girls are at least educated by the world standards, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have a formal education to get a job, um, are then easy prey to traffickers. So they might think they're just going to work in a bar and end up get, getting sold on the sex trade. Some of them knowingly know what's happening and have no other options. Mm. The stories definitely vary. Some of them were forced into it by family members. Um, But over and over and over again, I heard the story of women either not having choices, being forced into it, or having no other way to care for Mm -hmm. their children or dependents. And so I was talking to a woman there. It was her first night. She's telling me about her child that she was trying to feed um, and her her boyfriend that wanted her to do this. And she was showing me these cigarette burns on her chest. And um, the the organization I was partnering with offered these girls a chance to go through college and and provide for their dependents through that. So they did come out the other end having um, an education to give them more choices. And so I was talking to her. She was really interested. And as I was talking to her, these six drunk men came up to us, uh, which was super intimidating, and they wanted to buy her. And she said no. I said no. We both said no. These men were not taking no for an answer, started to grab her. And I didn't know what to do because they just weren't respecting no at all. And I had a teammate run over and say, why don't you just buy her first? Mm-hmm. So I pulled out some team money. Mm-hmm. I bought her. And still these men tried to take her. And so I ended up getting in this huge fight with the bar managers. Uh, these angry, these drunk men got more and more irate and eventually won the argument. And she was able to go home for the night. 
Unfortunately, these men were now angry and drunk and just pulled another woman off the stage. Mm -hmm. And I remember her looking back at us with just terror in her eyes. And by this point, I have been doing this work enough that I had women I had worked with before be murdered by clients. Mm -hmm. This is not safe. This is is a place where violent men go. And um, I just remember collapsing into the street, feeling like I had made the situation worse, Mm -hmm. like she was so easily replaced. And now these men were angry instead of just drunk. And I was so terrified Mm. for her fate and what I had done to contribute to it. And so that was like a moment where I'm like, I don't think, not that rescue is bad because I'm totally for rescue, totally for IJM, but I really wanted to know why, why does this keep happening? I'm sick of seeing these women be so easily replaced. I'm sick of men just doing whatever they want to women. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm sick of it. And it wasn't until the next night that I had a profound realization of the why, why this is happening. Um, We were in a bar again. Uh, American guy called us over and he was asking us why we were there. And we started to tell him and we asked him, why are you here? Mm. And he had this young woman under his arm and he was holding her possessively. And he said, I come here because women here are raised right and they know how to respect men. Women in the United States do not respect men the way they deserve to be respected and just went on and on and on about this respect that he felt he was entitled to, that he felt like he deserved, that sent him to go buy trafficked women to get that respect, right? Mm -hmm. And as he was speaking to me, I'm like, this sounds familiar. Where have I heard this before? And that's when I realized this sounds like the gender roles, my pastors, the marriage books I grew up with. We are part of the problem. My culture, my conservative Christian culture is part of the problem by teaching that men are entitled and deserve domination and respect and women must submit and comply and offer up their bodies Mm -hmm. to please men. Mm. I mean, what are the marriage books say besides respect your husband at all costs, submit to him and be available for him sexually at all times? Like literally this guy sounded just like these pastors and these books. And I'm like, okay, this is changing everything for me. I quit my job and I said, I'm starting to fight for feminism and women's rights and equality for women. So Mm. women are viewed as humans and not (laughs) objects and not things to submit to men Um, as full people made in the image of God. I'm going to fight for that because I'm seeing that what we have in common here with my oppression and their oppression is the idea that women are less. Mm. So I quit my job. I started faith and feminism, got pushed to the margins of church, mm. excluded, lost friends. Lot, family member was super upset with me, but I knew it was worth it because I knew God viewed women as people and that these gender roles that I had been taught were extremely harmful. Mm. And so that book, I, 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 the, why did I write the book? Because I want this to change. Yeah. I want the church to stop being complicit and upholding these structures of power mm. that make women oppressed or vulnerable or to be violated. Mm. So I hope that answers your question. I know it's a long answer. Yeah. And it brings up so, so many more. Thank you for walking us through that timeline. Cause I think mm-hmm. it really does circle back to um, your why and, mm-hmm. and it gives us a full kind of picture. I think everybody has those moments where, you know, you see violence, you take on the violence in your own body as a woman yourself mm-hmm. over and over and over again. And 
there either comes a point where you literally shut down and just go with it, or there's this fork in the road where you go, no, we're not going that way anymore. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a, a snapping <laughs> of like coming to your senses. I mean, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's really like God brought you this awareness and, and a revelation mm-hmm. of like, here are the dots that need to be connected, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, but I do have, I have more questions. So, okay. One of the things that you alluded to at the end of the story is that there's a cost to standing up for this kind of truth. Mm-hmm. And the cost is typically surrounding family, mm-hmm. friendship, mm-hmm. everything that we as social beings are wired for. Mm-hmm. So the cost is belonging, mm-hmm. um, or at least the perceived belonging, right? Um mm-hmm. But you were scapegoated mm-hmm. and because you're now the bad one. Right. Yeah. Because I'm a feminist and I can't be feminist in a Christian. Right. And I'm tied. I had friends. I had a really close friend, a very dear friend that I had been friends since high school, send me a message on my birthday telling me that because I believed Dr. Ford, um, obviously I believed, I believe women, I've seen enough sexual assault. Mm-hmm. I've been a survivor of sexual assault. I believe women. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you talking about the I Kavanaugh believe- hearings? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because I believe Dr. Ford, uh-huh. she said she couldn't be tied to me anymore. She couldn't be tied to the liberal agenda. She couldn't support me. She couldn't be associated with me. Right. And so, so right there, we're, we're like policing politics. We're, we're making mm-hmm. this issue so political when it's a human and, and divine mm-hmm. issue. Right. And, and yes. it's, it is so sick and warped. I mean, you want to talk about per, the perversion of our minds. Mm-hmm. It's that we've made this um, so political. We've put, there are dollars mm-hmm. behind this. There uh-huh. are, there are, there's big money to keeping these systems of oppression moving forward. Mm-hmm. You know, and so when you start to pull the thread that is going to draw the curtain back and you see the little man who's not the wizard, you know, of Oz mm-hmm. anymore, but, you know, it is exposing, you are often threatened, you are, mm-hmm. you're isolated, you know, you, people withdraw from you or they um, come out against you. How do mm-hmm. you... What's your encouragement to women who who might have already had that internal revelation of like now's the time as a Christian mm-hmm. woman mm-hmm. we're not we're not saying this is Jesus anymore. Mm-hmm. This is not Jesus. Whatever they're promoting this kind of hierarchy, casteism, racism, mm-hmm. like all of it goes together. So mm-hmm. if they've had this internal reckoning but they know there's going to be a consequence. What do you say to them? Um, I think what I told myself, I may think, I think there's several things because I'm not going to lie to people. It's hard. It's devastating. Yes. I don't even want to say it's hard. That's right. 
but it's devastating because this is like for me i this was my whole life i was i was a missionary i was a missionary for you know at least 5 years before mm-hmm. that like my whole life was the church and my friends and and i didn't it was everything mm-hmm. it was all that i knew um and so it took a lot of courage to speak up mm-hmm. but at the same time so i think there's several different things i want to say to someone in that position number 1 i think you need to find at least one other person mm-hmm. that that you can talk to about yeah. this. There has to be, as I shared earlier, knowing that I wasn't alone, knowing that I wasn't the only one questioning this was absolutely essential. That support network was essential for mm-hmm. me to speak up. And so I wouldn't, I would say find someone, that person can be online. There's, you know, there's a lot of groups out there, biblical Christians yeah. uh, for equality. Uh, there's my, I have a group called Faith and Feminism. Mm-hmm. There's lots of groups out there that you can join if you don't have that in person where you can talk to someone and find encouragement and hope and mm-hmm. say, I'm not crazy, mm-hmm. right? I'm not crazy. Right. Because they will try to ga- gaslight you. Yeah, the and, gaslighting and, is real. And gaslighting is when mm-hmm. it's, you're the crazy one, right? Right. It's the, the truth teller, the prophetic voice right. is... Is actually wrong, quote unquote, and and that mm-hmm. is gaslighting. So if that's happening yeah. to you, you need to recognize if you are asking these questions of your pastor, of your Sunday school teacher, of the teachings. It doesn't mean you're a heretic for asking these questions. Mm-hmm. It means that you are curious and that you could be onto really exposing a very toxic system of abuse right. and oppression. And they will try to shut you up. That's just mm-hmm. how these systems continue going, is either right. silencing or ostracizing those people. So mm-hmm. that's a great yeah. point. Okay, so what else? Yeah. So get involved. Talk to somebody so you're not crazy. Yeah. Get a therapist. I I have a therapist. I love my therapist. Um, But I think the next thing is to remember who you speak for. And I think Mm -hmm. this has been my bread and butter, what keeps me going. Um, You know, there's the quote by FDR that says, don't, it's not the critic that counts. Mm -hmm. And I want to, you know, I've heard it take a step further. It's not the critic who counts. It's who do you speak for? Mm -hmm. Not who comes against me, but who do I speak for? That's good. And I have been changed by these women's stories. I can't forget. I can't unsee. I can't erase my womanhood, the oppression or assault that I've endured as a woman. I don't speak for these people coming against me. I'm speaking for for them. I'm speaking for women who have survived, for girls who are told they're not valuable, Mm -hmm. for survivors of sexual assault, for widows, for uh, girls sold in the sex trade, for women who've endured uh, female genital mutilation, Mm -hmm. for women who've been denied an education, for like, I could go on about the ways that women are impressed, but that is who I speak for. And I am am 100% convinced when I speak up, I'm speaking for them. But more than that, I think that's God's heart. If we look at scriptures, we see a Jesus who comes and supports women and empowers women and flips these gender roles on their head. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite stories is of Mary and Martha, mm-hmm. of this idea that in this culture, women are not meant to interact with men. They're supposed to be hidden away. They're supposed to be clean and cooking. A woman's place is in the home, and mm-hmm. should she... Exit that, you know, hell hath no fur, you know, <laughs> what will come upon her if she breaks with that gender role, that prescribed gender role. And so we have the story of Mary and Martha. Martha is acting with her gender role. She is cooking, she is cleaning, she's doing what she's supposed to do. Mary 
I guess thinks she's above her station, as some people might say, and sits at the feet of Jesus, which is super offensive because she's being surrounded by men, which she's not supposed to. And to sit at the feet of a rabbi means that you intend to be a disciple or an apostle or even a rabbi yourself. Mm -hmm. So this is super offensive. And so we can understand Martha growing up in this culture, why she might say, Mary, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to come help me. This is where you're supposed to be. But you know how Jesus responds to that? Mm. He says, Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Mm. And every time I start to think that maybe they're right, maybe God does want women to be less, I look at those words of Jesus and I say, no, Mm. I have chosen what is better. I have chosen to speak up for women, and it will not be taken from me. Mm. And so I I remember Jesus. I remember the Bible. Um, I remember my lived experience as being a woman, and I remember these stories. And when I remember those things, when I remember the stories of women who have overcome mm-hmm. women across the Bible, Mary Magdalene or Esther or Shipra and Pua, mm. all of these incredible women who push past their gender roles Mm. to do incredible things. I look at them and I'm like, this is why I speak up. Mm. I'm part of this legacy. I'm part of a society, a legacy of Jesus where women are viewed as as full people in the image of God, not less than, not servants. Um, And so that is what pushes me forward. And I think it's really important to remember that God, I feel so close to God. My faith in Jesus has not wavered. (laughs) Right. My faith in the church has. (laughs) <laughs> my faith in Jesus has not wavered. I know what I'm yeah. supposed to be doing. And my, I am not submissive to a man. I am submissive to God. Yeah. I am serving God, not a man. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's another thing that's so dangerous about this kind of theology is this male headship that now the man has to be how we have a relationship with God or how right. we hear from God. Right. And... Um, yeah, it has historical roots, which it I does. know you already had Beth yeah. Allison Barr yeah. on your podcast. So you, I second that book. Yeah. But go um, back and listen yeah. to the podcast if you haven't already, because yeah, yeah, she really exposes. I mean, academically yeah. and historically, really, really right. blowing the lid off of all of it. I mean, there's no mm-hmm. there, there's no real room to wiggle. Right. I I don't know how you can read that book and not question. Um, yeah. And see everything differently. Okay. Mm-hmm. Second question is how, okay, you mentioned you have a husband. Mm-hmm. Okay. At what point, when did, when did you get married? Are you still around the world? Amazing world race or whatever it's called. And yeah, I, I was a missionary with the world race. I worked specifically in the marketing department and I led a anti-human trafficking course. Uh-huh. And so I, I went back on the field often, but I was technically based in Georgia. And were you married um, at, at the time? time? No. Okay. I met him when I was a raging feminist. Okay. <laughs> so, so this is what I was so, going to ask is like, how, yeah. how, how does that impact your, your marriage? But, but yeah. it's still a relevant question. So, so yeah, what is that? It is an, uh, yeah. Talk about I that. will tell you that story. So prior to him, uh, I had a, you know, a lot of Christian men show interest and then they would find out that I was a feminist and be like, oh, take it a step back. Mm. I want a submissive housewife. And I'm like, bye. Yeah, like, this is, I'm not going to, at this point, I had learned enough. I had been in enough uh, weird relationships of like white men being in charge that I knew that's not what I wanted. Yeah. So when they, you know, started to take steps back, I said, bye. Mm-hmm. Um which was still challenging and difficult because I never felt like I was going to find a Christian man that mm-hmm. didn't want a submissive housewife. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually met my husband at a wedding. 
Um, I thought he was cute. Mm -hmm. And being who I am, I asked him to dance. (laughs) Good. Um, Yeah. So I asked him to dance and it was great. And then he asked me for a second dance. And I'm like, okay, if this is, I mean, and of course, while you're dancing, you have like, what's your name? Where are you Mm -hmm. from? Are you a Christian? Do you go to church? Like stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And so when it saw that we had a lot in common and this could potentially go somewhere, I was like, okay, well, I'm not wasting my time with any more men that are afraid that I'm a feminist. So I'm just going to get this out of the way. So I pulled him off the dance floor because it was too loud to talk there. And I gave him just the most long speech (laughs) on how I believed in women's rights (laughs) and how I was a feminist and how I was not a submissive woman. And I really believed in the empowerment and quality of women. And it was a mouthful. As you can hear me talk, I can talk. You got words. Um, you got a lot of journalistic yeah, words. I, got, no. I do. I do. And I and I care deeply about the flourishing of women. Yeah. And so I made that very clear. Uh, he just kind of watched me talk for a while. And then at the end of you know my little speech, um, he said, wow, I've never met someone so passionate about anything. And he was a goner, wow. like basically from that point on. And so he... And I mean, he lived in Ohio at the time and I lived in Georgia. So we had a long distance relationship, mm-hmm. but um, at, in the beginning, but it was actually good because we just talked and talked mm-hmm. and talked and talked and really got to know each other that way. Um, and then, yeah, the rest is history. An incredible, incredible partner. We got married. I made it very clear that I was not going to have any submissive obey husband <laughs> in my vows. Um, and he like, you know, the he had his friend officiate it and he's like, his friend believed in the submissive obey, whatever. Uh-huh. And he's... and. Dustin's like, no, that's not happening, you know? So, I mean, he's a huge empowering partner that I have. And people ask me, well, what does marriage look like if you don't have these certain roles? I'm like, well, it's really simple. Like, there's not formulas. We talk to each other. We listen to each other. We empower one another. We believe in one another. Um, It's really not complicated. We function in our giftings. Mm -hmm. And so, for example... Men usually, you know, usually men are the yard work people. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm the yard work mm-hmm. people because I like gardening and I like mowing the lawn. And he um, has allergies, yeah. and so he can often get like hives or whatever uh-huh. from his his yard work. And so I do that, and he does most of the dishes because I hate that. Right. And so I just think it's just learning how to function and talk and empower one another. He's been so empowering and such a partner, and he reads my hate mail. Mm. Um, and then I support him because he was a chemical engineer before. Oh, wow. He hated it. So he quit it. I like empowered him, like, go quit your job, wow. go back to school. And so now he's actually a computer programmer. Awesome. Um, and so I support him in his mm-hmm. desires and he supports me in my desires. And we're both fully human and allowed to be who we are. And um, obviously, I'm an outspoken, opinionated woman. People are drawn, like, people will approach me at parties and they'll say something like, what do you think about that? And they just, they're baiting me. They know that I'll talk. <laughs> and um, my husband's a lot more soft-spoken. Yeah. He, you know, he's an Enneagram nine. Okay. And what so are you? That doesn't make, I'm a seven wing eight. Okay. Okay. People think I'm an eight. Okay. I'm actually a seven, yeah. but clearly yeah. I have an eight wing. Um, but he, yeah. So like that doesn't make him less of a man or me no, less of a woman. Right. And so just being allowed to function in, in who God made us to be, yeah. being that Imago day, whatever that looks like. Yeah. And so, um, beautiful. yeah. Yeah, I think the, yeah. the, the word human that you just said, just in marriage, I mean, I think we have, yeah. we have so limited our humanity with gender mm-hmm. roles. Mm-hmm. And it is damaging men. It's mm-hmm. damaging women. Yeah. It's, it's damaging people. It's, it is so... Um, 
yeah, it's so sad because we really never get to step into the full experience of who we are. You know, I, I too love to get my hands in the dirt. I'm a much Mm -hmm. more, um, adventurous person. I like to camp. Mm -hmm. I like to Mm -hmm. jump off cliffs and my husband does not. He's like, that Mm -hmm. is not sound fun, you know? So (laughs) he he has other, he is an, he's Mm -hmm. a better cook than I am. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so anyway, those, those kind of stereotypes are, are we, we just limit each other's humanities. We don't, right. humanity, we don't get to discover the fullness mm-hmm. of who this Imago day is in each of us uniquely mm-hmm. on the earth. Um, okay. I also want to ask you a question because when you were first talking on the show about, you know, all of these collections of stories, I, I feel there was something going on in my body that was kind of rising to each of these scenarios of the women across mm-hmm. the world that you were talking to. And that's because I, I too, have worked with women who've been mm-hmm. oppressed, exploited, trafficked, whether in clubs or whether they're coming into our drop-in center at Jesus Said Love, mm-hmm. whether um, they send us an email and they express their story of what's happened and we have to, you know, resource them. But... Mm-hmm. Being that attuned to others' trauma, um, mm-hmm. it's really hard. And mm-hmm. did you find that when you set out on this work as a missionary, not only were you not trained in like mm-hmm. saviorism and all these mm-hmm. kinds of things, or even or patriarchy, you had you didn't even know what you were mm-hmm. going to get hit with. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably didn't have any real like trauma training. Like I didn't even know what really trauma work meant Mm -hmm. until I did the work of Mm -hmm. JSL and we start going to trainings Mm -hmm. and I'm like, Oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. not only have I been traumatized through sexual abuse as a child, Mm -hmm. but now I've got secondary trauma too from Mm -hmm. all that. So how do you take care of yourself in this work because you are you have borne these stories in your body and you've just said mm-hmm. they're not going anywhere like they are mm-hmm. my why as far as why I'm speaking out what I'm doing they're mm-hmm. part of your why at least you've also expressed that you've had your own harm you've had your own mm-hmm. trauma um how do you keep fighting therapy <laughs> So, I mean, it's really interesting because, like, again, I didn't have all of this language. Even even the context I was growing up in, like, they're like, therapy is bad. You mm-hmm. just need to pray it away, you know, which is so – that's not okay. We need trauma-informed therapists. Mm-hmm. We need trained therapists. Um, but I think therapy has really helped me understand and get to the root of my trauma. Mm-hmm. So, like, a lot of these traumatic things – I mean, they happened when I was young, mm-hmm. like very young. Right. And so I, in, and I go back and I work to heal those memories. I do something called EMDR, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure if people yeah. are familiar with, but um, really helpful. And so I see a therapist regularly. Um, I shared with uh, you two, well, mm-hmm. I guess Jersey's here. Maybe you guys don't know Jersey's here, but I shared <laughs> with these women before um, the podcast started. I just got done with a therapy mm-hmm. session at the shootings in Boulder. Mm-hmm. Super traumatized me. Mm-hmm. I went to school in Boulder, as I shared earlier. The memories that I had of a, a safe and happy mm-hmm. and joyous sacred place were so violated by the violence that happened there. 
I wouldn't have understood why I couldn't sleep and all of these other things if I didn't have a trained trauma-informed therapist to help me say that. I mean, it's not like she's, she's not even telling me that. She's just guiding me to my own answers. Right. Oh, this is why this is hitting me so hard. It's because this was a sacred place for me mm-hmm. and it was turned into a place of violence. And so it makes sense as a human being that had a safe place that that place was turned into a massacre, that that's really mm-hmm. difficult. And to have people respond in such a way of, I mean, I don't mm-hmm. even want to get political, but like guns don't, guns sure, aren't the problem. Sure. When, when, um, I've grown up with school shootings. Right. I, I'm from Colorado. Right. We know about Columbine. We know about yeah. the other shootings there. And so, um, yeah, my therapist really helps me. And I think that's been really helpful. I journal. Mm. I talk to God. It's so funny. If I look at the progression. So I've kept a, a Jesus journal uh-huh. is what I call yeah. it since I was 18. Yeah. So I am 32 now. I have however many yeah. years of journaling. And I get to look back at that and see even how my relationship with God totally. has evolved and become healthier. So in the beginning, I was praying how I thought I had to pray, mm-hmm. which was, Jesus, you're so great. Mm-hmm. Like you're high and mighty, lifted right. up and all that stuff. And it was ne- never did I get to any real meat of what <laughs> I was feeling, what I was experiencing. Never did God get to meet me in my humanity. Right. It was all about like, I think my version of God at that time was like, He's kind of a narcissist, and you have to tell him how great he is yeah, all he's, the time. And he's so other. Uh, right. Than you. Yeah. 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 And so, but you see this progression, and I love looking back at these journals as I grow, and I get real with God, and I get honest with God, and I'm like, I'm really struggling here. Yeah. I'm really questioning here. I have a lot of doubt here. Mm-hmm. And so now my journal entries, they're real. They're honest. I don't feel like it's performative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another way I process. And I think another thing is just having a really important support system mm-hmm. Like I said, my husband, uh, he's such a, he, he's my biggest supporter. Mm-hmm. He reads my hate mail when I ask him to. Sometimes I think I can take it on. I'm like, oh, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have read that. <laughs> um, but um, he, yeah, having that support system. And I know not everyone has that support system. So I'd say seek it out. Try to talk to a close friend yeah. um, about what you're experiencing. Um, try to talk to your sister or someone, um, it's really important to have that support system. And finally, not feeling this performative need to be good or okay or happy Mm. or spiritually bypass my emotions all the time, to sit in my grief, to sit Mm. in my sadness, to ask questions. Like I think we think anger, you know, for especially if women, we're taught that anger is such a bad emotion. Right. Well, I was a raging mess mm. um, after Trump got elected. Yeah. I was so angry. Yeah. I didn't know what to do with myself. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I'm drowning in anger. Mm. And then to ask questions, anger is not a bad thing. Mm. Let's ask questions. Why are you angry? Yeah. What grief are you experiencing? How do you not feel heard? How do you feel powerless? Yeah. Tell me, and, and asking questions of my anger or my grief or my sadness to, to understand what, how I could, you know, why I'm feeling what I'm feeling, how I exist in the world. And I feel like God gave us those tools. He gave me a body that knows when something's off, mm-hmm. right? Like you feel, sometimes you can feel your heart in your, your throat mm-hmm. or you can start shaking or you can feel like you need to just like go lay down. Like mm-hmm. I feel like we need to listen to the, the gifts and cues that our body gives us and not to treat them with hostility, but to treat them with curiosity. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I think all of those things, it's a combination. Yeah. Um, yesterday I came off two podcasts. I was still messed up from the shootings. Yeah. 
And I just took a nap. Yeah. And I'm like, this is yeah. this is what I need today. I am not going to force myself to work. I know I have a deadline with some articles that I need to write. But I think right now, anything I try to produce is going to fall flat. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to recognize that my body needs rest. My body needs healing. And so I'm going to take this nap. Yeah. yeah. So It is uh, something that we don't necessarily always learn to honor and to take care mm-hmm. of our bodies and and that our mm-hmm. bodies are good our bodies aren't bad you know I'm yes. remembering Kat Harris on our podcast just mm-hmm. talking about those questions and her journey there but um taking care of ourselves as a, as women can sometimes mm-hmm. feel like the worst thing to do like right. that's actually the worst choice you could make right now is to, it feels self-indulgent. You think you're narcissistic. Mm-hmm. You think you're, mm-hmm. you know, um, not doing your job. And yet it is, it is so key to loving right. well, to loving mm-hmm. the way that Christ models on the earth. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. To, to live and yeah. love embodied. It's it's so important. I'm so glad you said that. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine as an Enneagram 7 that sitting in the pain and that sitting mm-hmm. in those really painfully present moments can feel like a torture chamber. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's such brave work and proof mm-hmm. of just your faithfulness to your calling and to your God mm-hmm. that you are willing to do that work. So mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty remarkable. Thank you. Um, do you, you mentioned not losing faith in Jesus, but losing some faith in the church. Mm-hmm. What's your hope for the church? <laughs> You've got this new book coming out, Women Rising. Yeah. Is this for the church? Who's the book for? Um, it's for women. Um, specifically, specifically women in the church, because like I said, I feel like they're overseen, overlooked, um, told harmful Mm -hmm. theology, but I think it's for the church as a whole. Um, my hope for the church is that we conceive women as full people, not less than, not easily deceived, not capable, you know, we say women aren't capable of leading or teaching or preaching. I feel that the church needs to change that. And, see, and, and and it's so interesting because like, not only was it super harmful for me to grow up as a girl hearing that I was less than or that my body was a stumbling block or that I was easily deceived, like all of these messages have, of course, affected me. But we don't think about what these messages communicate to little boys. Mm, right. And we're, when we're, we're looking at the world... this patri- So this, it's patriarchy, essential, essentially, in our church. When we're looking at the world... And who's committing violence and who often is receiving that violence? It's men. And and I don't say that as a man-hating feminist. I think it's because men have been raised to believe, not all of them, but a lot of them have been raised to believe that maybe women are slightly less or maybe this person of color is slightly less. And so I'm entitled um, to their body. Mm -hmm. I'm entitled to this right that I feel that I have. Mm -hmm. And so if I don't get this thing, we even look... I mean, there was a shooting in Santa Barbara, um, you know, like five years ago. The the shooter, the male shooter said he shot women because he thought he was entitled to their bodies and they wouldn't sleep with him. Mm. And so this whole idea of like, I think men aren't given the tools to number one, 
see the value, see women beyond objects or servants, right? right. So we're, if, I'm, if I'm raised to believe that my wife is supposed to be submissive and sexually available to me, this is like the two biggest teachings, mm-hmm. how am I going to treat her? Mm-hmm. Is that probably not very well? Um, and, and again, this is not saying all men, but we have to understand that the teachings yeah. are absolutely influential. And on top of that, it's hurting men because men are not given the resources to, you know, they're told, don't be a girl, don't be a sissy, right. which... Number one, communicates the misogyny we have that a girl is a bad thing and you're not supposed to be like her. But number two, communicates that men cannot have healthy emotions Mm -hmm. or have ways to express those emotions. Mm -hmm. And so as a man, their script is dominate, be powerful, control. When an emotion like grief hits them, Mm -hmm. they don't know what to do with that. And so oftentimes that grief, because it's not acceptable to be sad or to be like a girl, that they lash out and respond in anger or in violence because they haven't been given the tools to process and understand that relationship. that thing, and they don't want to be a sissy, and they don't want to be less than a man, and they right. want to be masculine and dominant. And so, these teachings don't not only cause harm to women, but they cause harm to men. And something that I think about that just breaks my heart is my husband is the most touchy feely person ever. He's always touching me, and it's really sweet and really cute. And I, you know, never really like asked questions like why why is he doing that? And so one time I was talking to a Christian um, on my podcast, a Christian sex coach. Oh yeah, I was she talked to her. about uh-huh. sex coach. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that was Rachel Alba. There's another oh, there's one called a... Dr. Tina. Okay. okay. Yeah. So uh, her name is Dr. Tina Shermer Schellers. Okay. And she talks about how young boys are deprived of touch from like age seven because it's viewed as feminine. So this, like women are allowed to touch their girlfriends yeah. and cuddle with their girlfriends. Like that's not viewed as weird. But should a man do it, then it's breaking all of the man codes. And that's why they even hug each other and they're like, no homo. You know, right. like this script that I can't even get my basic need of touch met from the age of seven or eight, the idea that I cannot touch someone, that is also harmful. harmful. And so like, it breaks my heart to think that for so long, he had a need for touch, but could never get it. Um, expect, except oftentimes in a violent way. So, oh, but you can punch someone, that's okay. Right. Or you can sexually assault someone or you can express it through sex uh-huh. or something else, but never just touching someone, not being close to someone. And so I really just want to demolish these scripts yeah. because it's not helpful to men or women and it harms both of them. And so if we're supposed to function in the flourishing that God made us, mm. We should be allowed to express our emotion if we're a man. We should be allowed to cry and be soft and touch our friends, mm-hmm. our man friends. Right. That should be okay. Right. And if we're women, we should be allowed to be strong and angry and experience the full gamut of emotions. Mm-hmm. We don't, we're not made so different that we don't have the same needs yeah. and same emotions. Yeah. They're the same, but they've been gendered out of us. Right. And so um, I think for me that like, I don't even remember what the your question ho- yeah, was. Yeah, the hope for the church. Yeah, my hope for the church is that um, we stop gendering and telling men how they should be and telling women how they should be, and we allow all believers of the church to function as they were made to be. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because as I was getting healing in my last therapy session an hour ago, I always find that my sessions end with hope, mm-hmm. like bolder 
is such a sacred place to mm-hmm. me. And I was sobbing for most mm-hmm. of it, thinking of the violence that happened in that grocery store. I have so many memories of getting cookie dough yeah. and eating cheese samples. Mm-hmm. And just seeing those pictures triggered me. I knew everything about that place. Wow. But to like reframe and it's like, is Boulder now unsafe because something bad happened to it? Is Boulder bad because something terrible mm-hmm. happened to it? No. Mm-hmm. We have the power to change. Just like if something bad happened to me, if I was sexually assaulted and I was, did I change? Right. Did I become less valuable? Right. Did I become unsafe? No. There's healing to be had. That's not to bypass what happens, but there is hope mm-hmm. and there is healing and Boulder is still a sacred and good and happy place. And those memories will not be tainted by the violence. Yeah. And, and if anything, it's going to fight, make me fight more to see that violence is not so prevalent in our society. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's an aspect of gun control. Mm-hmm. But of course, this is, if we're looking at who mass shootings are, and the la- I just looked at the statistics of the last 118, mm-hmm. 114 men. were men. Yeah. What does this tell us yeah. about the gender roles that we right. have and that male violence is happening so often? How, why is it always men? Yeah. Why? Yeah. It's because they've been gendered not to express their emotions, because they can only express themselves by dominating and control yeah. and violence. Yeah. So the question is, it's like, yes, I want to do more about, you know, treating maybe a gun like a car, getting a license, uh-huh. getting it registered, getting insurance, whatever. Maybe treat it like a car. That's a great analogy. Mm-hmm. But more than that, I want to ask, why do men feel like when they're struggling and I'm not going to say all men again. Right. I want to make that really clear because I think people hear this sometimes. Why did that shooter, like, for example, why did he feel that he needed to shoot people? <laughs> why did he feel like that kind of dominance was okay? And why is it men? And so I think even the work I'm doing, breaking down these gender roles, yeah. I have hope that I'm actually combating this kind of violence. Yeah. Because I'm I'm trying to let people see the systems and the teachings that we get and how this contributes. And so um, my hope for the church is that we can learn, we can be better, Mm -hmm. that um, there is, we can look at the fruit of our teachings and see that the fruit of gender roles is bad, Mm -hmm. but we can see that the fruit of like following Jesus and letting people flourish is good and there is hope and there is healing and we can learn from our mistakes and we can be better and we can say we're sorry and say that we screwed up. Like I hurt so many many people when I was a conservative evangelical. Oh, well, sure. like, <laughs> of course oh, I did. Course. I hurt. We all have. Yeah. But the, the, the answer is not to just say I didn't sure. or deny it. They say, I'm really sorry, and I'm going to work to be better. Yeah. And that's my hope for the church. I'm really sorry that these gender roles caused so much harm. Not only to you, not only to most women, not only to the men, but to like the, the extreme violence that we see. I'm sorry, I didn't know better. Now that I know better, I'm going to do better. That's a quote by my um, mm-hmm. Maya Angelou. Mm-hmm. Do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. And so that's for my, I want people to read the book. Okay, this is what's happening. I know better. Let me do better. Mm-hmm. And where can people, where are we finding your book? Because I, I think the date, is it May 11th now? Is mm-hmm. the release yes. date? So can we pre-order it? Yes, please, please, please pre-order <laughs> it. Um, I, I, goodness, I don't. I'm sure you've had other authors on here, but writing a book is an extremely oh, vulnerable, 
It's like if you want to see your therapist a lot, write a book. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's been really vulnerable. And I'm still kind of scared that this is being in the world because I'm honest and I'm raw and I share my story with people. And so it means so much to me if you did pre-order it. Um, you can find it at Amazon okay. or really anywhere that booksellers are sold booksellers. Uh, anyways, you can find it online. Um, and if you go to my Instagram, Megan Chance, I have a link where you can pre-order it. You can also join the launch team, which I'm looking for my people to do that. Um, okay. So if you're listening yeah. to this and you want to be a part of Megan's launch team, I think that's a great invitation mm-hmm. to those who are listening, who want to be part. If you've never been a part of a book launch team, I think they're really fun. I've been part of mm-hmm. book launches before. And I remember, I think, um, with, Courage to Change. I was a part of Jessica Honiger's launch team. Anyway, mm-hmm. there's been several throughout the throughout. The, but you know, you get some pre like perks. You get some mm-hmm. conversations. Mm-hmm. You get some pre release mm-hmm. chapters, and um, you just get fired up for this mm-hmm. really great work that you want to you know get behind is coming out into the world. And so you kind of get to celebrate with the author um, mm-hmm. this moment. And so yeah, if you're interested, definitely go to Megan's link tree. I think it's on your Instagram and you can mm-hmm. sign up yes. right through her Instagram to be a part of her book launch team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're interested in pre-ordering, go for it on Amazon and the release date is May 11th. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what good work you are doing. You are a uh, warrior mm-hmm. and you have held so many stories of harm and you, through the fire of the Holy Spirit, those mm-hmm. stories are now being transformed into beauty mm-hmm. that can be released in the world. So I, um, I'm really, really thankful that you came on the show and that you mm-hmm. shared with us your journey, how it all connects with why we need to um, not just rethink patriarchy, but why it needs to go. Mm-hmm. So I right. know a lot of us are like, oh, let's just think about patriarchy. And I was like that for a long time because I just didn't know the language. I didn't even understand fully what mm-hmm. it was. But this is really a pervasive, damaging, oppressive system um, right. that is taking down uh, women and men. Mm-hmm. It's taking down the whole church. And so yes. um, along with other oppressive systems. But if, uh, yeah, if you want to know more, you need to check out women rising so thank you megan for joining us yes thank you so much for having me it was such a pleasure to be here and blessings to you and um your city so we are we are with you and thank you for sharing that with us thanks for joining us we hope this episode brought some light to your own story and hope for your journey make sure to subscribe and leave a comment for more info on our work visit jesus said love.com Until next time, share the love.